Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun, the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Britain's membership of the EU has provided much of the scientific, regulatory and trade infrastructure that is key to medical research and the UK pharmaceutical industry. So in this episode, we're going to look at the issues relating to drugs and medical research. How will research funding, access to medicines and collaboration between health specialists be affected? We'll also be looking at the question of whether reciprocal rights to access treatment for EU and UK citizens will continue. I'm joined by Sarah Neville, our global pharmaceuticals editor, Mark Diane of the Nuffield Trust, and British Medical Association spokesman Andrew Dearden. Sarah, first let's look at the decision to move the European Medicines Agency out of London to Amsterdam. Aside from the 900-plus job losses, how will it affect the licensing of drugs? Well, at the moment, licences for medicines, so-called marketing authorisations, can be approved in the UK and still apply across the whole of Europe. But unless we can get regulatory harmonisation going forward after we leave the EU, all of those medicines currently licensed in the UK will have to be re-licensed in one of the EU member states in order to be sold across mainland Europe. And that's an enormous bureaucratic hurdle at a time when, as you just mentioned, the EMA will be losing a fair proportion of its staff, because even though Amsterdam, the chosen location, did actually top the staff survey in terms of the cities that staff would be happy to relocate to, the agency itself is still expecting around a quarter of its staff to leave. And if those 25% of staff are disproportionately based in the parts of the agency that look at the approval and authorisation of medicines, then one could anticipate some significant delays in reauthorisation to allow those medicines to continue to be sold across Europe. Andrew, what's the BMA's view on this? It's very important that we have a, a working relationship with them. Otherwise, we might find that the drugs won't be able to easily be uh, approved for the UK. Uh, drug companies that produce those drugs may produce them for Europe and may even not consider getting approval for the UK. But also even monitoring after a drug is available. We've worked together with Europe on that. It's vital that we continue that process so that patients continue to get the high level of drugs and drug monitoring that they have now. I guess Brexit really has turned a spotlight on just how integrated the European medicine supply chain is. And the EMA did highlight this issue in no uncertain terms as far back as May when it issued a document making clear that there would have to be separate arrangements on mainland Europe 
to monitor the safety of medicines and the release of batches of medicines. In other words, a whole infrastructure that would have to be duplicated in order for medicines to continue to be exported from Europe into the UK and vice versa. Mark, the UK has its own national regulatory agency, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. How well placed is it to fill the gap left by the EMA? I suppose the first thing to say is the MHRA does have a good reputation. It carries out actually an outsized proportion of the work that the European Medicines Agency outsources to national regulators. If any regulatory agency was going to be well-placed to take on what it will have to take on, it would be the MHRA. But with that said, we don't know what the size of job they'll have to do is yet, and under some circumstances it could be pretty ominously large. So one possibility is that even after we've left the EU, we try and set up some sort of model where we still work pretty closely with the European system. And that could mean, for example, that the MHRA would still approve some drugs and pass that regulation over to Europe, and the European system would still run and pass regulations to the UK. Now, under that scenario, it would probably be fairly manageable. But, you know, there's nothing to say that we'll necessarily be able to achieve that, and you can certainly see how it might transgress some of the EU's red lines around letting Britain cherry-pick the bits it likes to stay part of. Another possibility, which I think is higher risk, is that we try to move to cooperating with a range of different medicines regulators in different countries around the world. And some other small countries like Singapore do this already. They'll draw on other countries like the USA and the EU. They'll take their recommendations and sort of import them for use there. And that's potentially something we could do as well. We could even try to work with other countries outside the biggest pharmaceutical markets, the USA and the EU, like Japan, like Australia, to form a sort of collaborative system that might still be quite attractive to pharmaceutical companies. But if the idea of continuing to cooperate with the EU is uncertain, obviously that's even more uncertain. So if I was sitting in the MHRA, I think what would worry me is the uncertainty around whether or not they will actually have to take on the entire load of approving all new medicines or whether something can be sorted out. And at this stage, that's really not clear from where I'm sitting. The import of medical isotopes presents a special regulatory hurdle, doesn't it? Are we moving any closer to resolving these? Medical isotopes are radioactive substances that are typically put inside people's bodies for the purposes of scans. They emit radiation from inside the body and that can be picked up to do things like bone scans. And they need certain characteristics, so there are only a few substances that are suitable. You can't put any radioactive material in someone, obviously, which might be dangerous. And the UK really relies quite heavily on importing many of these, and in particular, technetium-99, which is the most widely used one. You can't produce that anywhere in the UK. It requires special reactors, and the nearest one is in the Netherlands. Now, it has been suggested that there's going to be a real sort of embargo after we leave Euratom, which we are doing at the same time as leaving the EU, on importing these things from the EU. I think that that has probably been overplayed. These substances aren't controlled in the same way as fissile materials that you could actually use to build a bomb. But that shouldn't leave us to overlook two issues that really do cause some concern around radioisotopes. So the first of those is just these things have a very short half-life. So the substance used to generate technetium-99 decays in 66 hours, well its half-life is 66 hours, decays in something that basically can't be used. So in a worst case scenario in which we have real delays at the borders, that substance being held up there will become useless and that I think is a real worry because it does need to be constantly imported in small batches for use. The other area where I think Brexit does create real concerns around medical radioisotopes 
is that these are substances where there have quite often been global shortages in the past. And in the past, the Department of Health has worked with the European Commission to basically form an orderly queue, if you like, to distribute the finite stocks of this stuff that exist. Now, how's that going to work when we're outside the EU? We won't be able to be part of that system in the same way. Is there a risk that we'll lose our place in the queue if, as I'm afraid does seem fairly likely, at some point there's another shortage in future? Andrew, do you have anything to add? Yeah, one of the things I think that's really important around the Euratom, the um, medical isotope question, is to remember why we use these things. So, for example, we use them in the diagnosis of disease, so some heart uh, perfusion tests and bone scans to stage common tumours. We also use them in radiotherapy for cancer itself. We sometimes also use them in the relief of pain when it comes to sort of, again, bone tumours. But also some of our blood tests and hormone tests are actually involved in what's called radioimmunoassay. So we use radioisotopes in all stages, both from diagnosis through to treatment. It really is important that we have a secure and a consistent supply of these things. We can't stockpile them. We can't store them. It has to be a regular flow. Otherwise, the way that we treat patients is going to be affected. Mark, EU regulations due to take effect in 2018 will harmonise arrangements across the EU for clinical trials to create a single entry point for companies wishing to carry out trials of new drugs on patients in different countries. Will the UK lose out on some trials as we would no longer be part of that harmonised procedure? I think if we are no longer part of that harmonised procedure, then unfortunately, yes, we will. And that's going to be a particular issue for drugs for rarer diseases and conditions, which the EU has tried to do a fair bit to support. And you need cross-border trials for those because Britain may simply not have enough patients with a given condition to form a study in a control group. With that said, I know that many parts of the science industry and the pharmaceutical industry want us to continue implementing this regulation, and they hope that we may be able to continue in some sort of alignment through our ongoing deal with the EU. And that may be possible. I certainly think it's worth exploring. I think one concern that the pharma industry has is that in the case of multi-site drug trials, of which there are many, we could post-Brexit get into a situation where data sharing between different arms of a trial, you know, let us say one in Germany and one in the UK, becomes difficult, if not impossible, without transgressing data protection laws, which obviously will apply differently in the UK and the rest of Europe. I think that's absolutely right. And the EU has a provision where it can designate a third country, as Britain will be, to have adequate data protection, which would allow you to keep exchanging data in that way. The problem is that that's really discretionary and they could withdraw it whenever they liked. So there is a bit of an uncertain future on data regulation as well. Sarah, will the loss of the EMA make London a less attractive location for the pharmaceutical industry? Because the UK receives an outsized share of investment in medical research. What are the pharmaceutical companies telling you about their plans? Well, I think some certainly privately and even one or two publicly have made clear that they are putting further investment decisions on hold. On the other hand, the government can counter by pointing to two quite large promises of fresh investment in the UK that were announced in November. One by MSD, which is the name by which Merck, the US company, is known in the UK, 
And they announced that they would be setting up a state-of-the-art research hub in London. And although the company hasn't itself confirmed the size of its investment, I understand that it will be in the region of £1 billion. And separately, a German-based diagnostics company called Kiagen also announced that they would be setting up a new campus in Manchester. And this, I think, underlines how... UK does still retain an appeal because of its wider ecosystem, the world-class science that we have here. And even though the NHS is sometimes criticised, it is nevertheless seen as a resource for some of these pharma companies, particularly keen to get access to our cradle-to-grave patient database which can help when you're trying to assert real-world evidence for the effectiveness of your medicines. So I think we do have an appeal, but the question is how strong and how durable and will it, as you rightly say, allow us to continue to punch above our weight in the amount of investment we're getting? Because we currently get I think 3.5% of all the global life sciences investment here, despite having only about 2.5% of the global market for medicines. So we're doing pretty well at the moment, but whether that will continue, I think, remains an open question. Now, Andrew, staffing has always been a big worry for the NHS, and we've touched on employment gaps in another recent episode of Brexit Unspun. The BMA conducted a survey on this recently. What were the findings? Well, in November of this year, we published a survey of about 1,700 doctors from the EEA, basically asking them how they were feeling and what their intentions were. And what we found was that 45% were actually considering leaving the UK, which is a huge number. There's about 12,000 doctors working in England alone that are from the EEA. So to lose, for example, half of those would significantly affect the way that we can provide healthcare. But perhaps more troubling, nearly 20% of those who responded have actually made plans to leave. And anecdotally, in the survey, we actually had people responding, telling us they had already moved or had already planned to move. And we do have some case studies of people who've been here for 20 plus years that have now moved out of the UK because of Brexit and the effects of the referendum after. So how would the NHS cope with the loss of this huge number of doctors? I think it's important to remember that we already have gaps in our current numbers of doctors. We have gaps in many specialties and in many areas of the UK. So theoretically, we could be talking about losing five or 6,000 doctors by intention, and we're already looking at losing between 2,500 and 3,000 who've actually made plans to leave. Now, most of these doctors will be in the areas of either general practice or specialty and consultants. So the effect on healthcare, both in primary and secondary, could be quite dramatic. And a lot of the doctors are focused sort of in the south and southeast of the UK, where, of course, the population is higher that's going to make a big difference as well. So this is a fundamental problem in the way that we can provide healthcare in the UK. Has there been any government response to your survey? Well, one of the things the government initially said is that it was less than important because more doctors are working in the NHS than before the referendum. But of course, the survey was quite clear. It was asking the people who are already working here their intentions in the next one to two years. And the intention as at half are considering leaving 
and 20% have already made active plans to leave. So this is about what they're thinking and planning, not just the fact that they're working in the UK. Members of the academic and medical communities warn that Brexit could be a disaster for British science because of its impact on the free movement of researchers across Europe and on the ability of UK researchers to attract research funding. Mark, what's your view on this? I'll take that in two parts. I think the first one is about the migration of scientists. And on that, I can see where concerns will come from. And we can see in recent polling of doctors that some very high-skilled professionals are reconsidering their place in the UK. But looking across the piece, it's actually categories of staff who don't have those advanced postgraduate qualifications and who don't command those high salaries like nurses and social care workers that I worry about most. I would hope that even a more restrictive post-Brexit migration system would still let people through in those higher skilled categories. So for me, that's not one of the groups from an NHS perspective that I worry most about us losing access to a European labour market in. I think on access to research funding, Horizon 2020 and its predecessors and successors, which are the EU's framework programmes for science, have undoubtedly been a really good thing. And not just because of the money that comes in, which proportionally seems to be more than we would put in, but also because they obviously facilitate Britain working in international collaborations on various scientific questions, which are often where the real world-leading science gets done. Now, it seems to me that there is some possibility that Britain could remain effectively an associate member of Horizon 2020 from outside the EU. Some countries which are outside the single market at the moment, which don't have freedom of movement like Israel and Turkey, are allowed to hold that status. The question, I think, would be whether it's politically viable from the EU's point of view to let Britain stay in this as a non-member of the single market. What are your thoughts, Sarah? I was struck when MSD, Merck, in other words, made its investment announcement recently that they specifically said that their aim was to attract the world's best and brightest research scientists to London. So that seemed to be a real vote of confidence in continuing free movement of staff at that very high level. Uh, Of course, though, as Mark says, it's not the super duper PhD toting people, perhaps that we need to worry about so much as it is nurses, care workers and the far more junior members of staff, you know, if they quit, then the NHS certainly is in real trouble. Mark, do we know whether reciprocal rights to access treatment for EU and UK citizens will continue once Britain is outside the EU? And if so, at what cost? So this is very much in play at the moment. In the notes from negotiations between Michelle Barnier and David Davis that we've had so far this year, we've seen that they have actually moved to agreement on continuing reciprocal health care for people who are already getting it. And the two main groups of those people are people who use EHIC cards for travel, which I'm sure many of your readers will be aware of, uh, lets you access emergency healthcare, say on holiday, on the same basis as local, and what's called the S1 form, which has let many British people retire abroad, you know, stereotypically to Spain, and then access healthcare there in the same way as a local resident of, say, Spain would, and that's paid for by the UK. And that's kind of important for the NHS because, for reasons we don't fully understand, it appears to be the case that those pensioners are being cared for in Spain at a much lower cost to the UK than would be the case if they were cared for here. And it's a bit of an ominous scenario for the NHS if all those people were to lose those rights and potentially be forced to return. Obviously, we'd have a duty to care for them, but it would be very difficult to find the resources when the NHS financially stretches as it is. But we have had agreements so far on the idea of those people who are already out there in France or whatever in their retirement being able to keep 
their S1 form and keep their rights there. And as long as we can actually sign the exit deal, that will be the case. The question then moves to what happens to future generations of people, you know, people who might want to get an e-hit card in future but aren't currently in the UK from the EU or vice versa. And at the moment, I have to say it is a bit tricky to see whether or not we will be able to secure those rights for future generations, which I think would be very helpful for travel and tourism across Europe, including the UK, and would be helpful to the NHS from the perspective of future generations of pensioners being able to move to places with healthcare, which for a range of reasons is cheaper. There is unfortunately no precedent for a country outside the single market having access to these schemes. We have managed a couple of other bilateral reciprocal healthcare arrangements with countries like Australia, but they really don't cover people in that pensioner scenario. So from our point of view, we'd really like negotiators at the trade deal stage to consider whether we keep going with these schemes. And it is in some ways in the EU's interest because they get quite a lot of money out of Britain to cover the costs of those people. But you can see problems in the path. What role does the Northern Ireland border, which is causing so many problems in the wider negotiations at the moment, does this have any kind of impact potentially on patients or drugs travelling between the UK and the EU? So in the two halves of Ireland at the moment, quite a lot of healthcare happens cross-border, and that goes both ways. The healthcare system in Northern Ireland is currently moving to a system where it will centralise heart surgery for children to Dublin. So if you're a child in Northern Ireland who needs heart surgery, you'll just be flown over there. And the aspiration is no facility in Northern Ireland where you can receive that. And on the other hand, if you collapse with a heart attack on a road somewhere in Donegal, in the north of the Irish Republic, the ambulance will take you over the border into Derry to go to the hospital there. So erecting a hard border, especially if it happened in a chaotic fashion with delays, could really get in the way of things like that. And because so many staff and patients cross the borders, typically from the Irish Republic to work in hospitals in Northern Ireland, there would potentially be a question about do those hospitals have the base of patients and the base of staff that would make them sustainable without that easy cross-border flow. So that is a real worry. Mark, what are the BMA's concerns about this issue? One of those is what we call the mutual recognition. So that if you qualify, for example, in Ireland or in Southern Ireland, It gives you the opportunity of working, for example, in Northern Ireland. The difficulty, of course, is that many doctors who work in Northern Ireland actually have qualified in Southern Ireland. So if that recognition doesn't continue, a lot of doctors currently working in the UK won't be able to, and those who perhaps qualify in the future won't be able to easily move to the UK to work or to be involved in research or in teaching. So one of the things that we're pushing for very strongly is what's called a mutual recognition of professional qualifications. If we don't have that, we're going to find a large number of doctors who would have worked in the NHS simply won't be able to. But Mark, I gather this mutual recognition isn't universally popular. There are a couple of areas where I think many people in the NHS would see a bit of opportunity to get out of some EU regulations that they don't like that much. And a couple of the most prominent are in the area of, if you like, regulation of staff, where EU regulation hasn't always been greatly welcomed in its regulation of NHS staff, is the provisions that it puts in connection with our duty to recognise professional qualifications from elsewhere in the EU. For example, that means that we can't necessarily test the clinical skills of EU migrants coming here to work, say, as nurses in the way that the nursing regulator in the UK would like. And on the flip side of that, because we have to comply with what other European regulators want to recognise, nursing courses in the UK have to meet certain criteria. For example, they can't be accelerated to be fit into a shorter period of time. Are there any other areas where you think the NHS could benefit from being outside the EU? 
So there's this directive called the Working Time Directive, which limits the hours workers can work in a week, mostly to 48. And the application of that to the NHS over the last 15 years or so has had a pretty major effect on the way that medicine works, especially at more junior levels. And there's a perception that it's kind of undermined the ability of junior doctors to basically, by working heroically long hours, simultaneously work in caring for patients as well as getting all their training. And I think a lot of doctors in the NHS, particularly those who remember an older generation, would see a bit of a chance to go back to that older way of working and would potentially see that as a way to address some of the workforce shortfalls in the NHS at the moment. Now, the kind of health warning that I put on that is actually we have real recruitment problems for many areas of medicine at the moment already, particularly some crucial ones like emergency medicine. There's doctors who work physically in the A&E and recruitment might not be eased by an announcement that the limits on the number of hours you can work are now going to be lifted. Andrew, what's the BMA's view on this? The BMA's view of the Working Time Directive is that what it's done is brought real patient safety to the forefront of doctors' working hours. We often in the past have thought, well, you know, we we need more doctors, we haven't got them, so we'll make the doctors we have work longer. But there's a real danger in that. There's no evidence that it's affected training, and indeed the Temple Report made it very clear that even with the Working Time Directive, there was plenty of time to train both physicians and surgeons and general practitioners. And if I may, I grew up in a time before the Working Time Directive and my average working week was in the high 70 hours, but my peak week was over 120 hours of work in a single week. And I remember running for a crash, for a heart attack, or when I held a crash bleep at 2, 3 o'clock on a Sunday morning when I'd been awake for 48 hours. And I remember thinking to myself, if I walk and this guy dies, I can go back to bed If I run and I save him, I'm going to be up for several hours. Now, I'm pleased to say I was so shocked by the fact the thought even passed through my mind that I ran faster. But it can't be right that we push anybody, but certainly doctors, to the point where they consider the life of a patient and sleep in the same sentence. I think one other area could be around EU competition law, where certainly some within the NHS feel that this is the UK's opportunity to get out from under competition law, which obliges many contracts within the NHS, certainly anything above a certain cost threshold, to be put out to tender. And of course, the role of the private sector within our UK taxpayer-funded NHS has always been very controversial in a way that I think people elsewhere in the world perhaps find a little odd, but it certainly is quite deep-rooted in the minds of many people in the UK. Sarah is absolutely right about that, and I think it's not so much about privatisation for a lot of people in the English NHS as it is about the feeling they have to jump through a lot of hoops to award a contract to anyone who might want to tender, when in fact what they think they're trying to do is create a coordinated, integrated care system where as much as possible is done by the same organisations. But what I would say about this is it's far from a done deal that when we leave the EU we won't be bound by similar commitments in future, and that could happen in two ways. Firstly, the EU may not be keen, as part of a trade deal we sign with them, for us to backtrack from current levels of market access to one of our biggest economic sectors. And secondly, and this is a bit more speculative, but all the material that we've seen on the UK's trade deal strategy after Brexit really bangs this drum of we are going to campaign to liberalise trade and services, we are going to campaign to open markets to UK services. Now, 
Will that sit easily alongside at the same time trying to close off one of the biggest areas of government contracts in the UK to other countries' healthcare providers? I think a lot of people in the NHS would welcome it if those regulations could go, but I'm not sure it'll be as straightforward as perhaps some think. In the grand scheme of things, for me, the important overall question for the NHS and the Brexit negotiations is, can we get a deal that heads off some of the risks which loom so much larger while still securing any of those opportunities we do decide we want? The other area is the issue of NHS financing, which was obviously pretty huge in the EU referendum campaign. So... The e-referendum was sort of odd in that it left the political class of Britain simultaneously with arguably a mandate to spend more on the NHS because that commitment of we spend £350 million on the EU a week, let's fund our NHS instead, was so prominent in the campaign. But at the same time as giving you arguably a mandate to do that, it also actually somewhat undermined the medium term means they have to do that because Brexit, according to the OBR, does mean about £15 less a year in the Treasury's coffers by the end of this decade. So that creates quite a difficult situation. And, you know, I think many people in the NHS would like for the mandate to spend more to be remembered, regardless of whether or not the means are actually there. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks to Sarah, Mark and Andrew, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Brexit Unspun. We hope you'll join us then. And in the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.